0: Good morning, kids. You are dismissed up to Grace Place. Thank you all for being here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at CF. Uh, Thank you again for choosing to worship with us today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that and keep that. We like giving Bibles away, so please uh, go ahead and keep that. And if you are using the seat back Bible, you're looking for page 836 in the seat back Bible. While you're turning there, I'd like to thank our um, hospitality team. They are uh, a part of our church, a ministry of our church that loves to serve people, that loves to welcome and engage with people. They do a lot of things. Not only do they uh, make sure the place looks nice, they update the announcements board, They, um, but they are the ones who really help set the tone for what we're trying to do here on a Sunday. The, the goal, the mission statement, if you will, of the hospitality team is to, uh, is to make anyone who comes in as a stranger leave as a friend. That's, that's their goal, and that's really the goal of the church in general. Um, and so it's not just that they make the place look nice, but they are, are warm, they're friendly. They answer questions. They, they want to engage with you. They want to, um, regardless of whether or not you're a stranger, you're a guest, you're a, uh, a longtime member, whoever you are, our hospitalities team seeks to just care for you in that moment. Um, and, and welcoming you and helping you to, to feel at home here at CF. And so for everybody that's part of that team, thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for caring about this place and caring about the people of this place. If that's a ministry you're interested in, uh, you can fill out a connect card or you can get more information from us. If you, uh, email church and Roscoe uh, or sorry, church and Roscoe village at gmail.com. Um, dot org is our website, but, uh, at Gmail is the is the email you can email us and ask for more information about the hospitality team and we will get you connected. So, um, all right. So Mark one, we started uh, a series in the Book of Mark last week. Um, Mark's gospel is, as we said last week, I'll give you a, a brief recap. Mark's gospel is is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's also the first one that was written. And Mark's Gospel is much more concerned with the actions of Jesus rather than the words of Jesus. Well, it definitely has him talking and teaching in there. Uh, The bulk of the Gospel is dominated by Jesus' actions. And so um, we also talked about last week how Mark is writing At a time where Christians were being persecuted, specifically in Rome. He's specifically writing to, uh, or predominantly writing to Roman Christians who are being persecuted under Nero. And Mark is writing hope to a persecuted people. Hope that says, Look, I know things are hard, I know things are tough, but look to the life of Jesus. Look what Jesus went through. And he came out victorious on the other side. And you, being in Christ, being wrapped up with him, will also come out the other side of this victorious. So, He's writing as a message of hope to a persecuted people. But he's also writing to show us and point us to the service of Christ as he lives into the role of the suffering servant. It's part of what he came to do was to suffer on our behalf, serve us, right? We talked about uh, Mark 10:45. the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And so he demonstrates, Christ in living, demonstrates for us what it means to live in response to God. And to serve others. So that's kind of the dual roles that Mark is trying to fulfill. Hope to a persecuted people and a call to live in a suffering servant matter as Christ did. And so this morning, we're going to get through last week. We got through all the way all the way up through verse 1. Um, I promise we'll get farther this week. And so we're going to look at the launch of Jesus' ministry. The launch of his ministry. The beginning of this story of God coming to earth. And when we see it start, it starts in a very unlikely place with a very unlikely person, which reminds us that God's power is not limited and oftentimes is best shown to us in unexpected ways. And so the whole opening scene that we're going to look at today is set up to remind us of what Mark stated very clearly in the first verse of his gospel. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Chosen One, the one that Israel had been waiting for, and the Son of God, both at the same time. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So please bow your heads and pray pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to worship you, to celebrate you, to, to rejoice in you, God. Um, Lord, you are the one who, through the sacrifice of Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, you grant us your peace. And so because of that, Lord, we glorify you. Lord, today as we gather, we remember that every Sunday, every time we get together in this building, every time we're we're singing and praying and reading scripture, every time we do this on a Sunday, it is like a little mini Easter. It's a time to rejoice and celebrate the resurrection. Every time we get together, it's a mini Easter. It's a celebration of the grace and mercy and power that was put on display by Jesus at the cross. And so, Lord, that passion, that excitement, that joy that we get once a year at Easter, Lord, help fill that in us today. Let us remember and never forget or lose sight of the power of the resurrection. Keep us focused dwelling on and in you. Lord, as we open your word this morning, let, the, let, let it fill us, let it challenge us, let it convict us, let it encourage us. God, as I preach today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read um, a nice chunk and then we'll go in and kind of cut it up from there. So uh, Mark 1, starting in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather's belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's stop right there. So as I said in the beginning, and I said last week, Mark's gospel is primarily written to Gentile believers, to non-Jewish believers. Which means that throughout Mark's Gospel, he doesn't quote the Old Testament a whole lot because it doesn't really matter as much to the Gentile believers. It's not part of their culture. And so the very few times where he does quote the Old Testament, that means it's really important. That's those times where the Bible is saying, hey, slow down and pay attention to this because this means something. And so this quote we see here in verses 2 and 3 of, uh, of Mark 1 is attributed to uh, the prophet Isaiah. And it actually includes references to the book of Exodus and the prophet Malachi. This quote is written roughly 700 years before any of the events of the New Testament. And so he's quoting the Old Testament, and then right after verses 2 and 3, John the Baptizer appears. I'm going to try and call him John the Baptizer, because I know the word Baptist makes some people uncomfortable, so we'll just call him John the Baptizer. In quoting the Old Testament and then introducing John... In doing that, Mark is telling us that this messenger that God was sending, that Isaiah promised, it's John. He fulfills that role. You see, Mark is taking us back hundreds of years and showing us everything is planned out. That the events of the Gospels, that, that John's appearance, that Jesus' appearance, that Jesus going to the cross, all of the things we're about to read throughout the Gospel of Mark, these things were not happenstance. They weren't uh, just a, a spur of the moment decision. This was planned out by God, orchestrated by God, for hundreds since the beginning, since the beginning. It's been orchestrated since forever. This was not just God reacting in the moment, And we see that in the quote from Isaiah. Isaiah promised that one would come, one who would set the table for the promised one, who would make the path straight for the promised one, who would get people ready. And that person is John. John was sent by God. His role as messenger, his role as prophet is set by God, preordained. So let's talk about John the baptizer. So we saw the description of what he wore and how he ate and kind of how he lived. The, the camel's hair, the leather belt, the, the honey and locusts, and being out in the wilderness. This is all a throwback, a reminder of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And you can actually read about him in First and Second Kings. He's one of my favorite prophets. Great story to read. Elijah is really, he was the poster boy for what a prophet, a person speaking the word of God on behalf of God to the people was. That's, that's what a prophet does. And Elijah is the one that throughout history, after his time was done, throughout history, Israel held him up when they talked about the great prophets. When they wanted to have something symbolic or someone symbolic, Elijah is that prophet. He is the one that they hold up and say, that's what a prophet was. That He is the symbolic representation of that whole era of having these men and women proclaim the word of God. But we saw last week, we looked at the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, where it ends with Malachi promising that the day of the Lord is coming, that one is coming to prepare the way. But then there's 400 years of silence. There's no prophets. There's no judges. There's no people proclaiming the word of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord doesn't even really seem to be with the people anymore. It just goes dark. And now, We see this man out in the wilderness, and he's reminding people of the prophets of old. He's reminding people from the Torah. He's reminding people of of Scripture. And so along with this unique clothing, this dietary lifestyle, John is also calling people to be baptized. Look at verse 4 again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, this wasn't a normal part of culture. The only time, if you were an Israelite, if you were a Jewish believer, the only time someone had to be completely cleaned, a full immersion, which is what we're talking about here. There was only really two times. One is if you were defiled, which is like if you, had, if you came in contact with a dead body, you had to get fully cleansed. Or if you were a Gentile who was becoming a Jew, who was uh, who was converting to Judaism, you had to be completely washed because you were seen as defiled. You were seen as unclean, unho- unholy. So for John to call all the people to baptism, including the Jewish believers, those people part of the family of God, what he was in, an ence- in essence saying was that all people have sinned. You are all defiled. None of you are clean. None of you are right with God. And so baptism became such a strong part and regular part of John's ministry that at one time, and there's, there's different parts where history just calls him the baptizer. He doesn't even have a name, he's just the baptizer. And we see from verse 5 that this message of repentance and baptism was striking a chord with the people because they're coming from all over. They're coming from Judea and Jerusalem. They're coming from the big city. They're coming from all over the place, the, the urban centers, to hear this message of repentance. To repent, it literally means to change your way of thinking. You were thinking this way and now you repent and you change directions. You go in the opposite way. You go away from whatever it is you were thinking. And so we see God's people coming from the city, coming from the urban centers, and going out to the wilderness. Which, like John himself, is again a reminder back to the days of the Old Testament. Because John appears in the wilderness, and people are coming out there to be baptized in the Jordan River. And both of these locations, the wilderness and the Jordan River, have significant value and are helping setting the scene for a new beginning, right? We talked last week about how our God is a God of new beginnings, of of grace, of mercy, of starting over. And that's what's happening in Christ. That's what happens when Jesus enters the world. We have a new beginning, and John is preparing the way for that by reminding us of beginnings in the past. You see, the wilderness, that's where God's people grew up. It's where they learned. It's where they learned what it meant to be humble. It's where they learned what it meant to depend on God, what it meant to be led by God. It's where they received the law. It's where they, they really were etched out as a people of God. God takes them out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're in the wilderness, and God is really establishing them as a unified people. And it was hard and it was scary because the wilderness is, is the wilderness. It's a place after the garden. It's a place of of that that is uncultivated. It's a place that is uh, wild and chaotic. But it's also a place where for the first time really after the garden, after that time in the garden where Adam and Eve were fully dependent on God for everything. They didn't need or want anything because God took care of them. Out in the wilderness, God's people had to be the same way. They had to depend on God because otherwise they weren't going to make it. And so being out in the wilderness is this call back to this time of, of growing and learning and depending on God for the people of Israel. And they come to the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the last obstacle standing in Israel's way to the promised land. God promised his people, I'm going to give you a land and it's right there. And the last obstacle they had to cross to get into the promised land, to get into the place God set aside for his people, was crossing the Jordan River. And God performs a miracle there so that they could cross and enter this place God has set aside for them. And now we see thousands of years after all of that happened, God is once again calling his people back to the wilderness to be made into a new people, to be welcomed into the family of God. But this call doesn't start In the cities, it doesn't start in Judea, in Jerusalem. It starts in the wilderness. They come from the cities, but John starts preaching in the wilderness. Because you see, the wilderness, it wasn't just blank nothingness, right? Because if John was just out walking in the desert in blank nothingness, preaching, nobody would hear him, and he was just a crazy person, and nobody would come from Judea or Jerusalem because no one knew about it. So clearly, the wilderness has people in it. See, the wilderness is where the sick went. Where the lepers, those with contagious diseases, they were to the wilderness. It's where the outcasts went. The poor, the needy, the lost, the broken, the refugees. It's where they went to live. It's the people society kicked out. The people society said, You're not normal. You're not like us. So go be over there because you're not one of us. And we also, as I said, had the sick people, had the contagious people, which is part of the law was that they were to be removed from society. But even that would get escalated where when they came into town, they either had to wear a bell or they had to yell unclean, unclean, so that people knew to stay away from them. See, the wilderness was where the people who nobody wanted to be around, that's where they went. John shows up to those people. To the outcasts and the outliers. And he is preaching. He's saying, confess and repent and get ready because someone is coming. There is a new beginning on its way and you need to be ready. Ready. And the message of the hope of the gospel, it doesn't start in the synagogues with church folk. It starts amongst the poor and the broken and the weak, those people who are ready to admit they need some help. That's where things start anew for God's people, out amongst the wild animals, away from normal life. So now after years of silence, after all of this time, there is this messenger from God proclaiming that a new beginning is coming once again to the wilderness, and it comes through one who is greater than John. Let's pick it up in verse 9. I want to read this over. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That one that was promised. That one that John had been telling the people to get ready for, the Messiah, he shows up. But he doesn't show up with great fanfare and applause. He doesn't have trumpets blaring. He shows up and walks into the water and he allows John to baptize him. But you see, even from this short explanation of Jesus' baptism, we see that his baptism is different. It's different than the rest because of who was getting baptized. John preached that his baptism, the baptism he was doing, was about repenting of sin and getting ready for the arrival of the Messiah. Well, now the Messiah is here and he has no sin to repent of. So why does Jesus walk into that muddy water? Why does Jesus let himself partake in something clearly meant for those who have sinned? It's because of who he was and what he came to to do. Read verse 8 again. It's John is speaking. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John preaches that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit baptism that John proclaimed, this forgiveness of sins, these things that John was preaching about are going to happen through the Messiah, and that's why Jesus is in the water. Because Jesus' baptism signifies that his message, his mission, his main purpose of coming to earth is to endure the judgment of God on behalf of the people. Through this baptism, he is declaring, look, everybody, the forgiveness that you seek, the hope that you seek, the repentance that you are proclaiming, it can only happen through me and through what I have come to do in going to the cross and dying and absorbing the full and complete wrath of God in place of all of you. And so Jesus is baptized to identify himself, to say, look, I have come to be the substitute for you, to identify himself with the sinful, broken people. And so Jesus is baptized, and we see in his baptism, he comes up out of the water, and we see another way in which his baptism is different than all other baptisms. Because Heaven breaks out. Heaven responds to Jesus' baptism in verses 10 and 11. We see it says, immediately as he came up. Remember we talked about immediately is one of those words. John loves it. It gives us this sense of of constant motion, immediately, and then, and then this happened, and then this happened. This is the the first of many that we're going to see throughout this book. It says, immediately Jesus saw. Jesus saw as singular. So I don't know if this whole scene, I don't know if it's for anyone else. I don't know if anyone else saw it. Jesus saw it. So it might be just a thing between Jesus and his dad. But what did Jesus see? It says that he saw the heavens being torn open. I love this phrase, torn open. It's schizo, to tear apart. It wasn't that the heavens are opened. They are torn open. And there's a difference. Right? If you ever give my wife uh, a wrapped present, Sarah will take her time opening a wrapped present. She'll find the, the spot where, you know, the, the best way to enter into the wrapping paper and like slide her finger, barely breaking the seal, um, unfold everything. She takes her time and really unfolds and unwraps presents in such a way where if she really wanted to, she could probably take that wrapping paper and reuse it, right? It's very clean and orderly and, and slow and methodical. It's open. Me, on the other hand, I think I and I would assume I'm, I'm like a lot of you. At least I'm I'm like Benji because he does the same thing. But I just rip. I just start tearing and throwing paper, and it's in multiple pieces. I just rip and tear. You're not putting that back together when I'm done with it. You see what is opened can be closed what is torn open cannot be so easily shut mark says that the heavens are torn open he is showing us that in jesus in his arrival the barriers of us and god have been ripped open and god is now on the loose in our presence We see at that time, physically, Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh, but then later on as Christ ascends back to heaven through the Holy Spirit, all believers have the Holy Spirit, have God's presence with us. The barriers of us and God have been ripped open, not to be closed again. We'll see this same word, this same idea, months from now when we get to the end of Mark. In Christ's crucifixion, it says the veil was torn in two. The the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelt in the sanctuary versus where the people could go is ripped in two. The barriers between us and God have been eliminated through Jesus. It says the heavens are torn open and there is the Spirit descending like a dove. The dove is a frequent symbol of the community of Israel, of, of community, of God's family. Jesus here is taking A stand as the representative of not only Israel, but anyone who would believe and be part now of the people of God. Anyone who would put their faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile, is now part of the family of God. And so we see the Spirit descend in the form of a dove, this image of community. A new community being built in Christ. And there's a voice from heaven. God the Father speaks to Jesus as Jesus is publicly beginning his ministry. And in doing so, he is submitting to the will of the Father to take on the sins of the world. And because of his submission, because of his willing choice to do this, God the Father expresses his delight in the obedience of Jesus. The Trinity is on full display. God the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit descends on God the Son who is willingly taking on the responsibility for the sin of all mankind. These things happen to affirm who Jesus is for the reader and acts as the official launch of the ministry of Christ. Jesus didn't become the Son of God at his baptism. He didn't become the Messiah. He wasn't chosen at that moment, but rather these things happen. God speaking, the the Holy Spirit showing up, heavens being opened. All of these things happen because of who he already is. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, the Messiah, the set-apart one who's going to redeem God's people and all of creation back to God. Because that's who Jesus is, he alone has the power and authority to be our sin substitute at the cross. He has the power and authority to give out the Holy Spirit. This is a launch of the ministry that has always been planned for him. A ministry that will be marked, yes, with grace and hope and life. But will also have as part of it hate and pain and sin and demons. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him. Right? You get this sense of, and then this happened, right? Peter, just kind of sharing stories. The Spirit immediately drove him. The Spirit led him inspired him to go, motivated him to go deeper into the wilderness. Just like in the Old Testament days, we said this is a new beginning. Just like in the Old Testament days, when Israel was in the wilderness, they were led with a pillar of clouds and a pillar of fire. God led them while they were in the wilderness. So too, Jesus is being led in the wilderness by God through the Spirit. But remember, it's still the wilderness. It's still full of chaos and undesirables. The wilderness is not the place you want to lay down roots and invite people over to hang out and watch the Bears game. So this too, Jesus going into the wilderness, shows us Jesus' willing submission to what he has been called to do on earth. The Holy Spirit says, go, and he goes. We see he is tempted by Satan. The battle begins. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every respect, in every way possible, with no sin. That he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way possible, but he chose not to sin. We see here in in Mark's account of this event that it's very brief, right? We only get two verses about this whole situation. Jesus is in the wilderness we don't get a whole lot of explanation. It says he's in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. And we don't really get any details of the battle and, and really not even any details of the results. And, and that's kind of Mark's thing. And one of the things I want to do as we walk through the Gospel of Mark as I preach through Mark. What I want us to do, because we said Mark's the earliest of the Gospels, and so he, um, you know, Matthew and Luke kind of take some of their cues from Mark. And what I want to do is... I want us to just sit sometimes. Mark's gospel, because it's the first one, gives us things like this, where it's short and brief and there's tension and not a lot of detail, and we want those things. And you can find those things in Matthew and Luke, and we can get the accounts of Jesus and Satan going back and forth. But what I want us to do as we walk through Mark is times like this to sit in the tension, because the tension is good. And I think there's a reason Mark writes this the way he does. We don't get any details of the battle or the results, and I think that's partially because Jesus never really stops being confronted by Satan. For the rest of his time on earth, whether it is through the many demon-possessed people that Jesus will encounter, the sickness and death he will see, or even the eventual betrayal and crucifixion that he will face, Satan is constantly going to battle with Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and so too the beginning of the constant earthly battle Satan is trying to wage against the Messiah. And so by starting his ministry, by submitting to what is coming, by submitting to staying in the wilderness, Jesus is allowing himself to be exposed to the barren brokenness of sin in this world. And we see a note here that Mark does give us a a couple of details. It says that Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted and he's with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. When Adam was first created in the garden, he lived in this lush, cultivated place at peace with God, at peace with creation and with the animals. Right There's that scene where God parades all of the animals in front of Adam looking for a helper. But then we see due to his sin, due to the sin of Adam and Eve, they are cast from the garden and creation and man's relationship is broken. And from that point on, there are now parts of creation, the wilderness that is not made to be lived in and holds in it danger like wild animals. And I think this note about the wild animals being there, I think not only is it a reminder to the danger that Christ found himself in, but it's also, um, you know, last week we talked about how Mark's gospel was written at a time when persecution was high for Christians. And one of the ways that they were persecuted by Nero is he would arrest them, they would be captured, they would, be put, they would put animal skins on them, and then the Christians would be fed to wild animals while people watched. Wild dogs and lions and bears... The Christians would be fed to them for people's amusement. Jesus willingly stays in this hostile, dangerous environment, being tempted and tested among the wild beasts. He stays because the Spirit put him there. He is faithful and obedient, and so he stays, but he's not alone because the angels are ministering to him. He was cared for and encouraged and filled up and never alone, even in the midst of this dark place. These opening events of Mark's gospel, they all come back to that very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That very first verse declaring who Jesus is, the Messiah and the Son of God the one who brings salvation, that's what his name means, the Messiah promised by God to do battle with Satan and restore what has been broken by sin, and he can do that because he is the Son of God. That, those roles that he serves in, that is the emphasis of these opening events. And the brevity of the descriptions and details is so, I think, that we don't forget or lose sight of that big point. And so we see John show up looking and acting and sounding like an Old Testament prophet. And in doing so, he is fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament, setting the scene for the promised one to arrive, making the path straight. His whole ministry set up to prepare for Jesus. John's faithfulness to this calling is a reminder to us that God is faithful to us. That we can trust the word of God because he doesn't forget or break his promises. Even if we don't like the timing, we got to always remember that God's timing is always perfect. He is always on time and he doesn't waste his time and he doesn't waste ours. Everything is thought out and planned. And then we see Jesus show up on the scene in this humble manner. He shows up. And puts on display for us the role that he took on earth. He didn't show up, he didn't come from Jerusalem or Judea, from one of the big cities. He came to the Jordan from Nazareth, a town so insignificant, it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's the middle of nowhere. I googled um, from Nazareth to Jerusalem. If you want to walk it, it's a 31 hour hike from Nazareth to to Jerusalem, and that's now with roads and not wilderness, and that doesn't even get you out to the wilderness where John was. I mean, Jesus is from a town in the middle of nowhere. That's where the Messiah comes from, and he walks humbly into the water and is baptized in the same way every other person who was bat- who had been baptized. But the difference is, he has no sin to confess. He has no sin to turn from. No, instead, he is baptized to show us that his purpose and goal is to take on the sins of the world, to offer hope and life to anyone who would put their faith in his life and death and burial and eventual resurrection. The role of servant that Jesus fulfills is obedient to the plan, obedient even when it means temptation, even when it means isolation in the wilderness, even when it ultimately will mean his death. Jesus went into the wilderness where he was tempted, where he was attacked and surrounded by hostile evil. You will have times in your life of wilderness. It's going to happen. You're going to have times in your life of desert, of isolation and exhaustion. And as you walk through those, remember this right here. Remember what Jesus went through. Remember that he went through it first. He knows what the experience is like and he knows the way out of the desert. And just as the angels ministered to him while he went through it, he ministers to us. As David said in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For the Lord is with me. Jesus found himself in the wilderness, in a place of chaos and darkness, face to face with Satan in the midst of wild animals ready to devour him. But he is not just a man. He is the promised deliverer and the Son of God. He wouldn't be stopped then. He's not going to be stopped now. He is with you and for you always. Do not forget that. Do not minimize him. Do not lose sight of who he was, what he did, or who you have put your faith in. Because the God who left heaven to came to earth is for you. The God who left heaven, he came to earth for us to defeat Satan and to offer us new life and new hope found only in putting your faith in Jesus, confessing your sins, repenting of them, and putting your faith in Jesus for the payment and forgiveness of your sins. He did that willingly out of love for us because of who he is, the Christ and the Son of God. Let's pray.